Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to the Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Aaron's staff becomes a snake. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile, will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and, your st and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded, he raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink it water, its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by the secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his place, palace, and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. The next one we'll read is chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, and then 12 to 29. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews said, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. Then verses 12 onwards. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and the total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much indeed for a long reading. Of course, that was just edited extracts in a way of nine of the ten plagues. We'll think of the next one, the Passover next week. Just listen, don't turn to this, but here is Paul quoting from that section in uh, the book of Exodus. This is from Romans 9, 9, 14. What then shall we say? 
is God unjust? Not at all. But he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let me pray. Loving Father, we confess that you are beyond us. We cannot fathom the greatness and the wonder and the majesty that apply to you and you uniquely. And so we pray, at least to a measure, help us by your Holy Spirit to see you as you are, that we might worship you as we should. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Who is the true champion of the world? That was the big question that the whole world was asking as George Foreman and Muhammad Ali squared up to each other in what was surely the most celebrated boxing match the world has ever known, the, the famous rumble in the jum, jungle in the, what was then Zaire in 1974. Foreman was the kind of young pretender with an awesome reputation He'd won all his previous bouts almost in the first round, at least in the first couple of rounds. Ali was the old man, 32, considered old in those days in boxing terms. He was the people's champion, but it was seven years since he'd been the world champion. He'd had to give up his title because he refused to fight in Vietnam. And he was determined to claim back what he thought was his by right, the championship of the world. Well, that question was answered, Ali won. Thousands of years before that, here is another fight brewing in Egypt. Pharaoh was undoubtedly the local champion. There was no greater figure in politics in that part of the world, quite possibly in the whole world. He was the most powerful man. So he's in one corner, and in the other corner is the God of the Bible, the Hebrew God, the God who'd just revealed himself to Moses by the name Yahweh, I am who I am. The God of the Hebrews, well, they dared to claim that he was not only the creator of the world, but he was the Lord of the whole world. He didn't look like it. The God of a slave people, dominated by Pharaoh. And God raises up Moses and Aaron, and he tells them to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And so in the name of the Lord, Moses and Aaron say, let my people go, says the Lord. And do you remember chapter 5? We saw it last week. Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord? It's a dismissive comment. Who is this Lord? Well, that remains a powerfully important question to this day. Who is the Lord? For some, it's a question that's stated with contempt. Who is God? As if we should bother with him in this day and age. No one takes God seriously. Who is God? Others may say it rather winsomely. 
Maybe you're here today, not quite sure what you think about religion. Who is God? Is there a God? And you've come open-minded, and we're so glad you're here. Others of you ask it with doubting faith. No doubt, like the Israelites would have asked it. They'd been taught that their God was the God of the universe. But is he really? They seem to be suffering greatly. And is God there? Does he care? Maybe you know these things, but you're just wondering, is this a God I can really trust? Is it a God who's really powerful in these particular circumstances that I'm facing at this time in my life? Who is the Lord? And that's the question. This whole section, in fact, this whole book, the book of Exodus and indeed the whole Bible is designed to answer. Our section began beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 5, God says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it, all that's about to happen will reveal to the people of Egypt and indeed, as we'll see, to the whole world who the Lord is. Who is he? Three great truths are revealed in these chapters. He's the supreme king, the righteous judge, the sovereign savior. First, the supreme king. Here's a fight, undoubtedly, not between Moses and Pharaoh. You might think that when you, you see them coming, Moses coming with Aaron behind him, or Aaron with Moses behind him, more likely. But for Pharaoh, you might think this is a fight between human beings. But no, we're told at the beginning of chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. In other words, Moses, when you go to speak to Pharaoh, you go in my name as my representative. This is a fight between God and Pharaoh. And we have from verse 8 onwards of chapter 7 a preamble to the plagues. Here are the two fighters facing up to each other. If you know anything about boxing, you'll know that the, um, the weigh-in is a big moment. Often comes with a press conference. And these two characters are shouting at each other. It's an opportunity to try and get the upper hand. And this is the kind of equivalent of the weigh-in. Insults flying. Ali shouting, I am the greatest. Mike Tyson famously biting Lennox Lewis in that face-off. And here we have not just words in this particular, as it were, press conference, but initial sparring. As Aaron throws his staff down on the ground and it becomes a snake. And then Pharaoh summons all his magicians and wise men. And they all put their staff down on the ground. And all of them, those staffs, become snakes. And it looks as if there's equality or even as if the Egyptian gods are more powerful than the one true God because there's just one snake, as it were, that Aaron's produced, but multiple snakes that the Egyptian magicians have produced. But then Aaron's snake swallows up all the others. It's polemical stuff. Snakes are significant. Let's have the image on the screen, please. A famous image as Tutankhamun's mask from the dummy. And it's quite hard to tell, but if you look carefully, another time you can look more carefully, in the middle at the top, there is the image of a snake. Actually, a cobra. Thank you very much. You can have the slide down. 
and very frequently. This headdress, it's almost a, a crown that the pharaohs would wear, would feature a snake. They believed that the world was created by Ray, the sun god, who took the form of a snake. And by having the form of a snake on, as it were, the pharaoh's crown, that was a clear sign that he was ruling under the great Ray and with his power and his authority. And so here is God's snake, as it were, gobbling up all those Egyptian snakes. It's effectively saying, not only is God more powerful than Pharaoh, but God is more powerful than those gods in whose name Pharaoh reigns. And just as that snake swallowed up all the other snakes, the next time that word swallowed is used in this book is when Pharaoh's army was swallowed up by the Red Sea. It's a preview, as it were, of all that is about to happen. There's no doubt how this fight will end. God is the supreme king. And after this preview, we have the accounts of the ten plagues. Now, in the rumble in the jungle, at first, Foreman seems to be getting the upper hand, and Ali is, is really hit. He shouts, if you ever watch footage of that fight, he's laughing at Foreman, uh, is that all you've got? But it's quite clear the punches were landing. It seems as if Foreman is winning. And then gradually, as the fight goes on, Ali just keeps standing tall, and eventually, it's Foreman who goes down. Very different in this fight. There's really no doubt, from beginning to end, who the champion is. Ten plagues, actually the word plague is not used in the original account. Rather, what, what each of these events are, not so much a plague, the word could be translated strike or blow, even punch. Ten rounds, and each begins with a blow from God before the knockout blow, which we'll think about next week, the plague of the firstborn. And there's the same pattern in almost every round. It begins with a demand to Pharaoh. There it is in chapter 7 and verse 16. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And that, by the way, is always the goal of salvation. That people might serve the one true God. We're enslaved, enslaved to other forces. Egypt, Egypt, in the case of the Israelites, sin and Satan and death, in the case of the whole of humanity. And God redeems that we might serve him. We might come into a relationship with the one true God and live under him and live with him. So it begins with a demand to Pharaoh, and then the response is Pharaoh refuses time after time after time. And so God then delivers the blow. Begins with the water in the Nile turning to blood. And these, I take it, are not accidental plagues, just any old plague. There's a reason behind them. The Nile was worshipped as a god. Of course, the Nile flowing through Egypt made fertility possible in that land. And here is God proclaiming that he is more powerful than, as it were, the divine Nile. He's in charge of Egyptian fertility, and he can stop it just like that. Or the plague of the frogs covering the land. Well, the Egyptian god associated with childbirth was given the head of a frog. And again, it seems a clear message that God is more powerful than the Egyptian gods. 
And then also, at least in the first cycle, there are three cycles of three. We then get the response of the Egyptian magicians. And as with the snakes, at first the magicians replicate the miracle that God is initiating. Chapter 7, verse 22, they turn the water into blood. 8, verse 7, they enable the frogs to cover the land. There is, as we saw last week, a rival evil power. There's no suggestion that these are magic tricks. They really are able to do these things. And we must not make light of evil. There is real evil, powerful evil in the world. And some of us maybe have experienced the power of that evil. I was just reading yesterday um, a wonderful book. I'm a bit biased. My sister's written it. But it's, it's a wonderful book, which is just about to come out, about the church warden at the church where her husband is, is the rector. And uh, his story, it's a, it's a dramatic story uh, from a very, very rough background indeed. It begins when he encounters evil. And here is a huge man, a very violent man, who was used to sorting out his own troubles, and often that it ended up in jail, confronting an evil that he could not defeat. It terrified him. So he knocked on my brother-in-law's door and said, I need to become a Christian. Because he knew he could not beat this power. Don't belittle it. But these stories make it very, very clear that although it's very powerful indeed, it's no match for God. And so in chapter 8 and verse 18, when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their sacred arts, they could not. They meet their match in God. And so when it comes to the locusts, chapter 10, verse 7, they say, how long, O Lord, uh, how long, Pharaoh, rather, how long till you give up? Previously, it was the Israelites saying, how long, God, before you do something? And now it's the magicians saying, how long, Pharaoh, before you give up? Because we can't beat this God. He's much more powerful than us. Here is the Lord, the supreme king over the Egyptian gods, the supreme king over creation. He commands the frogs in the water, the flies in the air, the hail in the sky, the livestock on the land. And as we go through these nine plagues leading up to the tenth of the firstborn next week, they gradually intensify. The impact becomes worse and worse. And just as the plagues intensify, so the proclamation of the greatness of God is magnified. We've seen this theme all the way through the plagues. They're designed to show us who God is. Who is the Lord? Well, 7 and verse 17, this is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. And by the next time, there's a reference to discovering something about the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10, 8, verse 10 rather. Now he is incomparable. It will be as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God, incomparable. Well, then 8 verse 22. If you don't let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, even the ground will be full of them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. 
And the fact that the flies went and plagued the, the Egyptians but not the Israelites, that's a clear sign, this differentiation, that God really is the Lord. This is not accidental. He's in control. And he's in control of the timing as well. 9 verse 14. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. He's not just a God of the Hebrews. He's not just a God, the God of the Egyptians. He's the God of all the earth. This is why I'm doing it, that the whole world may know. Here's a universal claim backed up by universal authority. And centuries later, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. Not just of Jews, not just of those who claim to follow me. I'm the light of the world. And his deeds proclaim that authority. And with a word, he calms the storm. And the disciple says, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Yes, he's full of God, full of love, this divine God. But he's a God not to be messed with. The supreme king who should be worshipped, the creator and lord of all. Not one of many gods, the only God. He should be worshipped. He really can be trusted, even when circumstances seem to be against him. The supreme king. And then second, the righteous judge. Back in chapter 7 again, 7 and verse 4, God is saying what he's about to do. And he says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Now, what I'm about to do will not just display my power, it will reveal my justice. I will act with mighty acts of judgment. Judgment. It's a word that gives some people the shivers. And they immediately react negatively with the idea that God could ever judge. I've had people say, no, God is love. He'll never judge. Which is a very odd thing to say, actually. Given the right passion that I think is, is very evident, especially amongst the younger generation. A passion for justice. And that must be right. Justice about so many of the horrific things that are done in this world. And of course, in the opening chapters of Exodus, we're confronted with some of the most horrific, heinous iniquities that were there in Egypt back in those days that we still see very much today. The Hebrew people were refugees. Why? Because of a famine that would have wiped them out. So they come in their desperation to the land of Egypt. And at first they're welcome, there's hospitality. But it's not long before the host nation, inappropriate title by the way, because they didn't feel as if they were hosting. They took advantage of the vulnerability of this migrant group. And so they used them and abused them as slave laborers. And then we see the same in the world today. For a whole multiple range of reasons, people end up leaving their homes often in desperate need. And what does the host 
nation do, not always welcome. And so many people, those in desperation, are used and abused, trafficked for sex, making a fortune for people other than themselves. They're just laboring away while others benefit from their labor. Exactly what was happening then. But nonetheless, despite this horrific treatment, the Israelites multiplied. And so the Egyptians thought they're, they're a threat, they're taking over. Again, it's not a million miles from language that's used today. And so Pharaoh announces that the baby boys should be killed. They're thrown into the Nile. It's an attempted genocide. And we say, well, we don't like the thought of a God of judgment. Well, should we not be horrified by the abuse of the most vulnerable in society? Should we not be most horrified by genocide? There is no worse crime against humanity, surely, than that. And here we have them at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So should we not rejoice when God says, I will act in judgment? Because the question in the early chapters of Exodus is, does God even see? Does God care? And can't we ask the same questions today as we look at evil abounding in the world? If God does see, if God does care, surely he should do what we demand rightly. Judges and societies and nations do today to act in judgment against these kind of horrors. It's good news that God is a God of justice. He acts in judgment and the punishment exactly fits the crime. Pharaoh's order was that these baby boys should be thrown into the Nile and that's how they should be killed. And what's the first plague? It's against the Nile that should be turned to blood. The second plague, the frogs, do you remember? A symbol of the Egyptian fertility god, the goddess of childbirth. An appropriate second plague, is it not? Or the sixth plague, the plague of boils. I wonder if there's something in this. A number of commentators have pointed out that this plague of boils is begun as foot, soot is taken from furnaces and then thrown into the air and then the result is boils coming on animals and people. And the furnace surely is a symbol of the oppression of the Israelites. That's where they spent their days in front of those horrific hot furnaces in a very hot land making the bricks from which others would profit. The judgment fits the crime. Is God just? The Bible says, yes, he is. To which you might say, hang on, I was listening to that passage. And it said, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So how can it be just for God to judge Pharaoh if actually he caused his heart to be hard in the first place? That doesn't sound like justice. And sure enough, we saw in chapter 7, verse 3, before these plagues begin, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we will come back to that phrase. But for now, let's recognize that is not, in the, the way the narrative is told, in any way a denial of Pharaoh's responsibility. More often than it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, are we told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In fact, with every single plague, we have a reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 7 verse 14, Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. That's one of many references. 
So which is true? The Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh's heart being hardened as he hardened his own heart? Which is true? And the Bible says there's no choice here. It's possible to be more logical than biblical. And logically, we want to say, well, one of those is is more true than the others, so one must cancel out the other. Take your pick. And the Bible says, no, both are true. If your head is aching at that point, well, that's, that's the God of the Bible. Don't think you can understand it. But both are true. Human beings are responsible. God is sovereign. He's not taken by surprise. He's in control even over their rejection of him. It's the great Charles Simeon said in the, uh, the late 18th, early 19th century, the truth is not at one extreme or at the other extreme, but at both extremes. God is in control. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, speaking about the cross, says, this man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And we, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So what caused the death of Jesus? God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It was his plan. So that, does that mean that those who nailed him to the cross are not responsible? No, it was with the help of wicked men. Both are true. And plagues teach us a lot about human beings and our evil. Sometimes people say to me, I, I, I believe if I, if I had more evidence. And the, the question the Bible asks is, is that really true? Because Pharaoh has ample evidence. The problem is not lack of evidence. The problem is in Pharaoh's heart. He was deeply opposed to God. And just as the Lord Jesus came into the world and we're told that here is manifest good, divine goodness and power. But John comments in his gospel, Light came into the world, but human beings loved darkness rather than light. They snuffed him out. God's power is very clear. Pharaoh's on the ropes again and again. He begins to grovel as soon as the second plague. But each time he's up again, he will not let God be God. It's, it's perverse. And yet we don't we find ourselves like that and maybe there's a warning as we've persisted in a pattern of rejecting God or a pattern of behavior which we know deep down is wrong. And maybe God lovingly brings us to our senses as the consequences of, of that folly, that wickedness comes clear. And perhaps we even say to ourselves, I'm, I'm going to change, I'll never do that again, or I'll repent, I'll come back to Jesus. And yet life then gets sorted out and all seems fine. And so we continue as we did before. And then God graciously gives us another chance. And, and another time we say, okay, God, if you sort out my business, I'll give everything to Jesus. I'll come to church. But then all goes well again. He's forgotten once more. There's the perversity of the human heart as we persist in our rebellion against God. And the warning here is don't mess with him. There's a time when God's patience will run out. He's the mighty king. He's the righteous judge. And then just briefly as we close, he's the sovereign saviour. Yes, we see in these plagues God's judgment of his enemies. But the great banner headline over these chapters is not God judges his enemies. The great banner headline is God saves his people. That's what's going on. 
And able to save his people, he must judge Egypt. But that's in order to fulfill his chief purpose, which is not to bring judgment. His chief purpose is to bring glory to himself through saving his people. And God had made a promise. He promised Abram that his descendants would become a great people and through them he would save all nations. And that promise looks a long way from being fulfilled at the beginning of the book of Exodus. As God's people are oppressed. God acts in judgment on Egypt that he might save his people, that he might fulfill his purposes, which is ultimately to save a people from all nations to bring glory to himself. Why were there ten plagues? And God could have just delivered one blow and that would have been it. Why ten plagues? We're explicitly told in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you, Pharaoh, and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why I've I've gone to ten rounds. Because each time it, it, it magnifies and reveals more and more my saving power and glory. So even when I'm acting in judgment on you, Pharaoh, it is to fulfill my saving purposes. That's exactly the point that Paul makes in Romans 9 to 11, where he's reflecting on this mystery of God's judgment and human responsibility and, 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 and divine sovereignty. And God is saying God's in charge here. And yes, sometimes he he hardens hearts, at other times he softens hearts, but even when he's hardening hearts, he's fulfilling his ultimately merciful purpose. And the ultimate purpose is that his name might be revealed to all the earth, and that many, many people from all nations, even in 21st century Oxford, might see from these events that God is God, he's a great God, he's a loving God, he's a powerful God, and will come to know him. And Paul at the end of this says, I don't get you, God. Rather than saying, oh, this is all a load of nonsense, I can't work all this out, he ends this reflection in Romans 9 to 11 with a great doxology. He says, God, you're beyond me, but wow, you're amazing. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, I worship you, the God who is sovereign and merciful. Yes, even in judgment, He's fulfilling mercy. And years later, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his divine son. And the Bible says he came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So Jesus, although he was rejected and despised, his great passion was not to, to judge people, but to save them. And that great passion led him to the cross, where he faced the greatest plague of all. At the moment he hung there, despised and rejected of men, darkness covered the land for three hours, surely reflecting the three days that darkness covered the land in the ninth plague. And why was there darkness? Because there was judgment, just as there had been the ninth plague. But who's facing the judgment? Not the people who deserved it for despising and rejecting him. But the one who faced it for others, as he faced that darkness, that if we trust in him, we might come into the light. Who 
Who is the Lord? He is the mighty king. He's the righteous judge. He's the sovereign saviour. He really can be trusted and he should be worshipped in all of life. Let's pray. Loving Father, help us by your spirit to see you as you really are. Help us to see ourselves as we are in our sin, to come to the Saviour, to know again his forgiveness, and then to be enabled to live for him. And we pray in his name. Amen.